From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is a special edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, setting the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. I'm Patricia Murphy. For just over a month now, we've increased production of the Politically Georgia podcast from two days to five days a week. AJC Washington correspondent Tian Mitchell joins us regularly, and broadcast veteran Bill Nygut has come to the AJC joining the Politically Georgia team every weekday. Add in our exciting new collaboration with Atlanta's WABE Radio, which is now carrying Politically Georgia live every weekday morning on 90.1 FM and at WABE.org, and we have so much to celebrate. This week, we marked the launch of the new Politically Georgia at Manuel's Tavern in Atlanta with a live event. And on today's special episode, we're bringing that event to you. You'll hear AJC president and publisher Andrew Morse talk about plans to transform our storied newspaper into a major modern media company. And Greg Bluestein and I interview our special guest, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. We talk about the efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election results, efforts to protect the integrity of our elections, and we look ahead to Georgia's role in the 2024 elections. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We now take you to the famous Manuel's Tavern in Atlanta, where our Politically Georgia launch party opens with the AJC's president and publisher, Andrew Morse. First of all, I want to thank Everybody for coming, uh, all of our partners, uh, some of our elected officials, uh, folks in the community. Uh, this is a really important moment for our state. Uh, and, and it's why we've taken this great franchise and this great podcast that began a few years ago on a shoestring with, with Patricia Murphy and Greg Bluestein two days a week and is now transformed into what, what we believe will be the tentpole brand over the course of the next year when Georgia is at the center of the political universe and eyes around the country are focused on this state and every news organization on the planet is coming in and out of Georgia trying to figure out what's going on. We're here and we're committed to doing this each and every day. And our mission at the AJC uh, is, is to be the most essential and engaging source of news for the people of Atlanta, Georgia, and the South. And it's a, it's a new mission that we set forth on in, in the beginning of this year. And part of the reason why uh, we, we talk about it that way, Atlanta, Georgia, and the South, and you can almost think of it as, as rings on a dartboard, is because we're in the midst of one of the most dynamic cities in the country, in the state that likely will again uh, be one of a handful that will decide who the next president of the United States is, in a region that is often overlooked in the national political conversation. And so our commitment to everybody in our community uh, is that we will be here uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, telling the stories that matter, the important and the interesting, the essential and the engaging. And as we do that, 
uh, and, and we launched this and embark on this new mission for the AJC, we're approaching it not just as a historic 155-year-old newspaper. We are that, and we are this, this tremendous legacy uh, that, that we know means something to this city. The mission is to reinvent the AJC, to turn it into something uh, new and unique, to, to double down on what we do best, but to transform the AJC into a modern media company. So as we do that, we're, we're lucky to have uh, a, a relatively new, although he's not new at this point, editor-in-chief uh, who's over here, Leroy Chapman. So Leroy came into his new role earlier in the year and is steering the ship. Uh, and we're also lucky to have in the room uh, Susan Potter. Where is Susan? Susan, many of you know, has, has steered and guided our, our politics team for, for a very long time. And one of the first things I noted, because I'm the new kid in the block, both you know, to, to the AJC and to Atlanta, uh, is just what an exceptional team of experts that we have covering politics. Uh, we do it on the local level in communities around the city and around the state. Uh, we do it on the legislative level. Uh, Every day of the session under the Gold Dome, whether we're in session or not in session, we do it on the, 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 the statewide level, and frankly, we do it on the national level. And what politically Georgia has become is, is the ultimate gathering place for us, a place to convene uh, uh, newsmakers and influencers and the people who matter most to the political scene. So this morning, uh, we had on uh, one of the contenders for the Republican nomination, Chris Christie. Uh, for a fascinating conversation and five weeks in, the show has had the Speaker of the Georgia House, uh, one of our senators, state legislators, we had a presidential candidate on today, it is quickly becoming uh, the place to be heard. So uh, as we embark on this next year, our commitment to all of you is if you wanna know what's going on, you will be able to get it every minute of every day on AJC.com, on your computer, on your mobile device, uh, on the printed paper, in case you all haven't heard, we are printing the paper. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Rumors of our demise have been greatly exaggerated, as they say. Uh, look, it's an important touch point for people, and I love holding it in my hand. I love opening it up. And by the way, when we break big news, I like seeing the network news anchors holding it up on the air and pointing to the great work the AJC has done. So that touch point in people's lives in the city at this moment in time is critically important. So without further ado, uh, we're gonna begin. I wanna introduce you to the great Politically Georgia team and I'll do it with a quick note. I've thought about, we thought it was a bridge too far, as you're, as you're building and reintroducing a new brand, we sort of had this conundrum because we had this great podcast called Politically Georgia that was two days a week. We had a great newsletter called The Jolt, which many of you, you know, wake up every day and start reading. And we said, well, wait a second. Wouldn't it be better to have one brand? Let's call it all Politically Georgia. And that created a bit of a jolt for people. So for those of you who are readers of The Jolt, everything you loved about The Jolt will continue to stay in this newsletter. But along the way, as, as the folks who write that newsletter every day and the folks who do this podcast every day, um, you know, as they think about their roles, I thought about maybe we'd name each of them Politically Georgia. So uh, with that, we'd like to welcome the stage Politically Georgia, Politically Georgia, Politically Georgia, and Politically Georgia, <laughs> otherwise known as Greg Bluestein, Tia Mitchell, Patricia Murphy, and Bill Nigan. So I'm, I'm trying to gauge, as they would at a political convention, who's voting for whom, but you know, it's hard to tell. Hi, everybody. 
I think, I think Tia's got the votes to win this one. Un- unquestionably. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going for the Murphy Mitchell ticket myself. Thank you. Uh, girls run the world. <laughs> but but let's, uh, let's begin, though, uh, with you, Bill. So uh, you're the new kid to this group, uh, certainly not the new kid to Atlanta. Um, but you joined the AJC team uh, a few months ago uh, after uh, you left your old post. So I'd, I'd say to you, what is it about this team that makes what we're doing so special? So uh, I think to say that I left my old post is a polite way of saying what happened. I was fired. (laughs) (laughs) It is the best thing that could have happened to me. Because, you know, Tia, Greg, and Patricia were all frequent uh, people on the old show. And so I got to know them better and better. And um, to now have a chance to work with them every day is really thrilling. You know, back in the day, Natalie Mendenhall, who's back there, our producer, along with Janie Bean, Natalie and I did the other show, Political Rewind. It was basically just us. And now I have these incredible partners who bring so much to the table that I don't know or necessarily understand. It's it's the most thrilling thing that I could possibly have had had happen to me. Well, it's great. It's a great team, and it's a great team game. And Patricia, I'd I'd sort of flip it to you. I mean, you, uh, you know, up until uh, a few months ago, you were writing a column, you were you were reporting, you were hosting a podcast two days a week. Now all of a sudden, you're on the radio five days a week in the midst of a, a crazy political campaign. Uh, how are you adjusting to all of this? It's very easy. <laughs> um, it's wonderful. I mean, in Georgia politics, I feel like there's no such thing as too much of a good thing. Um, we have incredible personalities, incredible dynamics. It's a battleground state for the first time in anyone's recent memory. Um, the stories just keep coming, and the more platforms that we have and more audiences that we can serve, that's what we want to do. And I hear from so many people who listen to the podcast who don't read the newspaper, people who get it digitally but then listen to it on the radio. Um, They'll see it on Twitter, then they'll go pull a clip down um, on some other platform. And so for us, it's just a one, it's a very, very rare thing in a newsroom these days to have more resources instead of fewer. And so we want to sincerely thank you and the Cox family for all of those things. And it's just, I mean, it's terrific. I've always been in a time of managing decline in journalism. And for the first time, I feel like we're really allowed to do everything we can. And that's so, it's such a gift for a journalist. And so we're really, really grateful. That's pretty exciting. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> and, and Tia, I mean, so, so for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure you all do, so, so Tia is our woman in Washington. So Tia is a one woman, you know, not just, she is our White House correspondent, our congressional correspondent, our Supreme Court correspondent, our Justice Department correspondent, our everything correspondent. So from your vantage point in Washington, what are folks in that city, how are they looking at Georgia these days? Well, uh, again, Georgia being the battleground state, everybody's watching Georgia. I look back to, you know, the Senate runoffs after the 2020 election. And then in January 2021, it literally came down to Ossoff and Warnock. And when Ossoff and Warnock both won, both being on the ballot at the same time, both won, both flipped balance of power in the Senate, which was such a game changer nationally for the Biden administration. 
And that's not, you know, I'm speak, I, you know, I know we have some Ossoff and Warnock fans out there, but just speaking just completely objectively about the impact that Georgia had and um, what I think, I thought at the time the, the focus on Georgia was temporary. I thought once Ossoff and Warnock, once these elections are over, people are gonna move on. And Georgia never, that focus is still on Georgia, what are we, two years, almost three years later, and it's not going away. And so not just are people interested in Georgia as a state, but I hear all the time, people are interested in the AJC being the paper that covers Georgia. Quite frankly, they consider us the voice for the South and so I hear people all the time who say they read the, I was going to say the jolt, they read the Politically Georgia Morning Newsletter. Thank you. And, and they're excited that we do have more platforms because they want to know what we have to say. The South got something to say. That's true. <laughs> this is true. So, so, you know, so everything that you just said is, is true. I mean, the spotlight is on us. We have, we have people in this state who have very deeply held beliefs on both sides of the aisle. Greg, not long after I took the job, I, I distinctly remember you and Leroy and I, after Leroy started his job, went and paid a visit to the governor. And, and so I'm, it's the first time I had met the governor, and, and I, I guess, made the mistake of making a comment to the governor that Georgia is the purplest of purple states. And both the governor and his aides just sort of jumped out of their chairs and were rattling off, you know, his, his poll numbers to me saying, no, it's not a purple state. You know, so, so Greg, you know, looking at Georgia now, heading into this cycle, uh, you know, how is the world looking at this state? I mean, how, how is Georgia positioned on the, on the spectrum? That was a thorny meeting with the governor. I didn't know you'd bring that up. Um, <laughs> I'd say like, it's a deep shade of, it might be a crimson shade. I think Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who's also the chair of the Democratic Party of Georgia, she calls it that too sometimes, a, a crimson state. But look, we heard from Chris Christie just this morning saying Republicans cannot win the White House without winning Georgia. To Republicans, this state is a must win. For Democrats, it's probably a cherry on top. You know, they don't have to win Georgia necessarily, but for Republicans, it is a central, the key really, to the path to the White House. And 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 you know, if Chris Christie is saying it on our air, you know, saying, "Hey, Donald Trump can't win Georgia. I can." That's part of his his message. Um, but that also means that our jobs whether we're covering politics, like the four of us on stage, whether we are like Maya Prabhu or Mark Nisi covering the legislature and voting election issues and abortion, they're here in the crowd. Woo! Welcome to them. Yeah. Um, Adam Van Bremer, the, the editor of the what formerly was called the Morning Jolt, but now called the Politically Georgia Newsletter. Your jolt of morning Your news. Your jolt of morning news. Your jolt of morning news. You see how great teams yeah, work? We're getting there, right? <laughs> we're getting there. Uh, plus our Savannah uh, uh, Bureau, and we're hiring, and we have so many other staffers. Some of them might be in this room, but so many of them are in the news room um, and we're hiring even more but everyone is going to be looking through the lens of 2024 as they cover whether it be news in Athens or you know the, the, the a county's political system or state education so much of what that that coverage goes into 2024 spectrum 
And, and, and as you all, I mean, you all have covered Georgia for a very long time. I mean, Patricia, you know, how has the state during your years of, of, of political coverage, I mean, how has it, how's it shifted in the, in the eyes of voters? How has it shifted in the eyes of the press? How has it shifted in terms of the national conversation? So it's been through a huge transformation many times over. Um, it had been uh, when I was coming up on politics and actually worked for Senator Sam Nunn at the time, um, it was an almost totally democratic state. Um, it was uh, full of people who called themselves uh, yellow dog Democrats and then blue dog Democrats, but some version of Democrats. Um, then there was really an almost entire realignment toward the Republican Party. Um, I went up to Washington in those years and began working as a journalist, and there really was not a lot of, there weren't many cliffhangers in Georgia politics other than the primaries. You know, who would win the primary? Oh, I didn't see that coming. Now it's over by July. Um, for the first time uh, in 2020, 22, and now for 24, I consider it a battleground state. I don't do shades of colors because it can be very controversial. <laughs> But it's a battleground state because it's a it is anyone's game. If you run the right operation and you have the right set of circumstances and the right candidate, um, either party can win these races, and that is a first in my memory in a very very long time. And so for us as journalists, that means you need to be covering these candidates seriously from the beginning in both parties. You can't ignore either party. Um, you need to know the operatives. You need to know the candidates. More than anything, though, you need to know the voters and what the voters are looking for, what's on their minds, what's worrying them, what goes beyond the polls, what's their day to day. Why does everyone think the economy is so bad? You know, they, you can't buy a house. They're, it's very logical. It's, we understand people's problems, but that informs so much of my coverage is getting out of the political system and getting out and talking to voters around the state to really see what's driving them. Those conversations filter up to their local elected officials, then those filter up, you know, kind of higher and higher. So um, for us, all of it is feeding into this really dynamic, um, but also combustible political dynamic and um, something that is, while wonderful to cover as a journalist, also leads to an immense amount of uncertainty anxiety, and we hear that in voters' conversations as well. Yep, and, and, and that's the thing, I mean, Bill, as you talk to voters, as you, you know, gauge people, what's on the mind of voters in Georgia? Well, right that's, uh, I think, what, what you're asking and what Patricia just said is one of the most interesting things about Georgia right now. We don't know necessarily what voters are thinking about. There are so many diverse points of view out there right now. Sure, we know there are MAGA Republicans. We know there are Democrats who absolutely, without, who are still yellow dog Democrats to the extent they're going to vote for Joe Biden, despite their concerns. But there are so many people out there whose feelings about politics are in flux. I thought one of the most interesting, we talked about this on the show yesterday, CNN released a new poll, as many of you know, over the weekend, a, a Georgia poll and a Michigan poll. And it showed that um, Trump was actually leading in Georgia among registered voters, which isn't the best screen, obviously. But uh, given that that's what it was, it had Trump up, up by five points. That was kind of interesting. But what was more interesting was that people who said they did not vote in the last election preferred Trump this time by 26% over Joe Biden. Where does that come from? We, we're all asking ourselves that question. Who are they? Why is that happening? So that's one of the most fascinating things. It's great talking to politicians, but when Patricia goes out into the communities around the state and talks to voters, I can't wait for those columns. 
It, completely. And that's and again, that's the benefit you have from us when we're here covering this state day in, day out, as opposed to just parachuting in. So, I mean, Tia, from your vantage point, again, the, the other interesting thing is, is our congressional delegation, um, you know, is getting national attention. Our senators get national attention. Some of our members of Congress get national attention. Uh, one of them in particular gets a heck of a lot of national attention. Uh, and you've spent as much time, I think, with Marjorie Taylor Greene as, as, as any reporter in America. So she, she certainly has had a lot to say about the presidential race. What, how is she positioning herself these days in, in Washington circles and as we gear up towards the election? So Marjorie Taylor Greene is quite the interesting individual to cover. Um, I just wrote um, a big profile of her about a week ago about how she's had to shift a little bit because she lost a key ally once Kevin McCarthy was removed as speaker. And not only did that mean that Marjorie Taylor Greene lost an ally, but it means that a person who had been key to kind of keeping her in check was no longer around to, so to speak, keep her in check. And so she's a little bit more unchained than she had been for the last few months. And um, she's gone back to kind of her old ways, a lot of conflict with fellow members. Um, but at the same time, what she's always been consistent on, and this is what's going to carry her into 2024, is she remains very close to former President Donald Trump. That means that she continues to be in the conversation as a potential running mate. I don't think she will be a running mate, but she's in the conversation. But even if she's not a running mate, she'll be a top surrogate. Um, in the early states like Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, definitely once the primary goes to Georgia, if Georgia's still in play by then, quite frankly, Donald Trump may have wrapped up the nomination by the time we get to Georgia. But that means should he become president, are we talking about a White House position for Marjorie Taylor Greene? And even if she's not a member of his administration, she's going to have... Uh, an open invitation to the White House, much like she had when Trump was in the White House before. She wasn't even a member of Congress. And there she was at the White House in those meetings, planning on how to attempt to overturn the 2020 election results, for example. So, you know, I know a lot of people get frustrated because they were like, don't cover her. You're legitimizing her. I'm like, sir and madam, Literally, this is my job. Um, so I can't ignore her, but what we work hard to do is to put it in context, to tell the truth, to not sensationalize, to be judicious about how we cover her. But we can't ignore someone who's a potential running mate to a potential president. That's right. That's right. And, and Greg, again, if we're, if we're listing off national Georgia political figures, our governor is one. And, and Chris Christie today, you know, made a point to, to talk about his relationship with the governor. Um, how is the governor looking at this next pivotal year? And again, Georgia election night four years ago. I don't need to remind everybody in this room, you know, election night, the last election night, Georgia um, hung in the balance. And so as you look at the governor and and 
how everybody's trying to win favor from the governor. Uh, what, what's your take on him these days? Yeah, I felt like Chris Christie had two audiences in mind for today's, uh, today's interview. First, of, of course, our listeners. Second, it was Governor Kemp. He might have mentioned Governor Kemp's name like seven times, eight times in a 23-minute span. And even when I kind of sounded him off, say, hey, thanks for joining us, he went on again about how great Governor Kemp was. Uh, he's clearly jockeying for Governor Kemp's endorsement in the March 12th primary. But as Tia mentioned, there might not even be a real competitive race by then. But no, Governor Kemp wants to be in the mix. Um, Governor Kemp is, you know, he, he, he effectively for the finally ruled out a run for the president in an interview with me a few months ago now. But up until then, he had kind of been, you know, dangling it out there as a possibility that he might jump in the mix. I knew he wouldn't. Everyone else who's, you know, been watching him very closely knew he wouldn't. But that's a clear signal that he might do something in the not-so-distant future. It might involve him running against John Ossoff in 2026 when, when the Democrat is up for a second term, and it could very well mean that he wants to be in the conversation in 2028. But as you mentioned, Andrew, he's not the only one. Um, Tia already mentioned how Marjorie Taylor Greene could very well be a national candidate, whether she's talked about as a cabinet appointment or a running mate or who knows what down the line, a Senate candidate. Um, but the other name that keeps on coming up is Senator Raphael Warnock. Patricia and I had uh, had lunch with a senior Democratic official in Washington, and I and I joked to that official. I thought it was a joke that oh yeah we'll see Warnock run in 2028, and you know straight up yeah that's there was not even a blink. This in the is eye. not a Warnock ally. This yeah, is not this a Warnock staffer. Ally, yeah. um, but yes, that that is the assumption among many Democrats is that he will run. He's got the resume. He's got the demeanor. He's got the audience. He's got um, so many attributes that make him a natural. Um, national figure, and I think we have um, we have yet to see sort of the the audience that he'll continue to reach, and the fundraising ability and the charisma. And so we have three legit bona fide national contenders, and I'm not even touching the um, you know scratching the surface here because there's so many other politicians, um, some of whom are in this room who are up and coming, who run for statewide office in the not so distant future, who are already in the statewide office, uh, and and others who I think will be bursting onto the scenes over the next few years. No, it's a, look, it's a good note, and again for us as well. I mean, Greg mentioned uh, Adam Van Brimmer, you know, earlier, who's our, our new bureau chief in Savannah. But as we expand next year, we're going to put reporters in, in other cities around the state, going back to places like Columbus and Augusta and Macon. At Savannah, of course, we're in now, Athens. Um, our commitment, again, is, is to be able to cover uh, not just politics here within Atlanta, but, but statewide. So, Bill? Well, I want to go back to your question of how things have changed, if you don't mind. Um, you know, I think some of you in this room have been around for a while, and you know I spent 20 years covering national politics for Channel 2 News and was out on the road a great deal of the time covering campaigns all over the country. And back in the day, um, I was able to get a lot of one-on-one -on -one interviews with candidates for president for one reason. That was the only way they were going to be seen in Georgia. They certainly weren't going to spend money or resources to come to this state, to advertise in the state, to campaign here, because it was a given that Georgia, for almost all of those years, was a red state. And uh, you can imagine what it's like at a place like Channel 2 back in those days when they're seeing uh, TV stations in Illinois, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in, in swing states, Michigan, whatever, uh, raking in tens of millions of dollars in advertising, and Georgia was a wasteland. And so to have watched that change has been just fascinating uh, for me. Um, I go back to Bill Clinton, 
winning Georgia in 1992, and actually before that, but um, that was it, remember, until Joe Biden won the state in 2020. So now everybody's coming. At one point or another, they'll all be here. And luckily we're here. So, so with that, as much as I would like to keep asking you questions, why don't we open it up? And, and there are folks here, again, we have elected officials, we have advertising partners, we have some of our staffers, we have people in the community. Ask away. You've got the best political team in Georgia up here on the stage. If you got a question, raise your hand, we can pass you a mic. Oh, we've got somebody in the back. All right. Um, we continue to see polling where the black vote is kind of surprisingly showing up. I think it was one out of five uh, that I saw that uh, is at least, th there's just changes going on. What's your take on it? Where is it going? Why do you think this is happening? And why does Trump seem to have lifted up his support in that uh, demographic? I'll start. Um, oh, I have so much to say, but okay. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm having flashbacks to 2020. And for those who follow me on the site formerly known as Twitter, but we're going to keep calling it Twitter, um, I had a lot of thoughts about the, the way the black vote was framed, particularly black male voters. I had a lot of thoughts about who was being held up as like a voice who represents black male voters. I had thoughts about Killer Mike and T.I. Um, and so I'll say that I will say among the subs, we know black voters are the backbone of the Democratic Party. Democrats need black voters to look at Viola Davis is shaking her head, Representative Schofield. They need black voters to show up. And so, and we know black people are not a monolith. Um, that being said, even when you talk about the fact that Donald Trump, as polling shows, is getting a larger percentage of the black vote than perhaps Republicans have in the past, still the vast majority of black people are still predicted to support Democrats. That being said, and then I'll let someone else, I do think black male voters are more um, likely to be open to Trump's message and Trump and his people know that and they're messaging in ways to appeal to black men. He just put out a document today talking about his agenda for black America. And when you read it, it sounds good. It's like, oh, um, you know, look at recidivism, look at the inmate population in federal prisons, look at HBCUs, look at school choice. These are messages that resonate. I think the question will be whether black voters and particularly black men consider whether Trump is genuine and whether Republicans are able to, how many black voters Republicans are able to convince that Republicans will truly do better by them than what they've received by Democrats. And that's gonna be the big test in 2024. I'll say one other thing, um, well, two other things. Uh, the polling in 2022, we were seeing a, a couple of months out that Stacey Abrams was polling at about 80% of the black vote. Was very, very unusual. That just does not happen in Georgia. And at the end of the day, that did not happen in Georgia. Stacey Abrams was able to consolidate that black vote. Whoever the likely voters were, 
they either changed their minds or they were not the right people to be polling. So I'm always skeptical, not skeptical, I'm always wanting more information about black voters as they're broken out in polls because those are naturally a smaller sample size. And so small deviations can make a big difference in that final number. Um, but I do think um, among young minority voters, I do think there's a shift happening among progressive young voters of color in particular. We've seen a huge, um, uh, rift is not the right word. A, a lot of anxiety on the progressive left um, because of the Israel-Hamas war. Um, we've spoken with members of the legislature who are young and diverse, speaking to their own voters who have said, we've never seen a cratering of support like this for the Democratic Party in the years that we've doing, been doing politics. So whether that's durable, whether that lasts as um, events change on the ground, I think that's a big question, but it's something really important to watch. And that 60% plus voters who support Donald Trump who did not go to the polls last year, a lot of those are younger voters. People did not vote the last time around. They were not 18 years old yet, but now they are more than 18, they can vote, and they have a lot of questions about this 80-year-old man who they kind of are not connecting with right now. I, I do think whether it's uh, black voters or the voters that we saw in the CNN poll, or for that matter, the Wall Street Journal National Poll over the weekend too, which showed uh, Trump ahead of uh, Biden for the first time nationally. I do think that if I'm a Democrat, my biggest hope is that if it does become a binary choice, a Trump Biden choice, which it increasingly looks like it's going to be, a lot of those voters who right now Patricia's talking about, who are skeptical, are going to come back to their roots because I think Donald Trump is a choice that many of these voters are probably not willing to make. At least that's certainly the argument I'd make as a Democrat right now looking at some bad numbers for Biden. And to amplify really quick, uh, Tia's point too. Remember, we're in a state where Republicans consider it a victory to get 10% of the black vote, double digits of the black vote. Yeah. And we look at um, Joe Biden's coalition that helped him win in 2020, and it was a, a fingernail, right? Fewer than 12,000 votes. And so to do it again, um, he has to not only mobilize African-American voters, black voters, uh, voters who are diverse and younger, but also get those disaffected Republican swing voters, moderate voters um, up in the North Atlanta suburbs too. And doing both those is really hard. And Trump helps that, right? Trump is so polarizing, he helps Joe Biden do that. But whether or not Joe Biden can recreate that coalition with Donald Trump back on the ballot is gonna be one of the biggest questions that we up here are gonna be trying to spend the next year answering. Fascinating. We have another question? Uh, yes, Maria Supporta of Supporter Report. I wanted to address the 2022 uh, election. One thing that Georgia stood out in was that we had a Republican Party, uh, including our Secretary of State and Brian Kemp, who were not um, Trump believers at the time. They were being independent of that. I'm really curious to get your thoughts about how you see 2024 playing out and how the Georgia Republican Party is going to settle down or do whatever when it comes uh, to Donald Trump being the nominee? Thanks, Maria, for the question. And I, I, I'll go back to what Patricia said earlier. I don't know if um, split, divide is the right word, but there's a, a rift. But there's a huge separation among Republicans between you know the Brian Kemp, more mainstream Republicans. Kemp would never call himself a moderate ever, ever, ever. But 
he is a, that does help him appeal to some moderate voters because he quote unquote stood up to Trump, right? Um, I think probably Secretary Raffensberg would never call himself a moderate either, but he was able to draw in a lot of moderate independent swing voters because of his stand against we'll Donald Trump. We'll, 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 we'll reply we'll to that in a minute. That. <laughs> but that that rift, that divide is still going. But we're in a weird, such a weird state that. Brian Kemp can be the most popular Republican in the state, according to the AJC's poll a few months ago, but Donald Trump can still have 57% of the vote. Two people who are at odds with each other nonstop can still be uniquely popular in the state, among Republicans at least. Yeah, one more thing. We, uh, Greg talked about Joe Biden winning by a fingernail. That means, of course, Donald Trump lost by a fingernail. Um, but Greg and I were at an event at the governor's mansion relatively recently with a number of senior Republicans, and one of them turned to us. He was not, he has no connection to Governor Kemp other than being a senior Republican. And we, we were talking about Donald Trump. He's like, I'm not voting for that guy. You know, <laughs> he's not voting for Donald Trump. And I'm like, well, who are you going to vote for? He's like, I don't know, but I'm not voting for He just has, it is a red line. He is not doing it. And so in as much as Joe Biden has major, major problems um, on within the kind of progressive left, Donald Trump has major problems among some Republican voters who either A, don't believe that elections are trustworthy and are not going to cast their votes, or B, simply cannot get past Donald Trump on the ballot. They'll vote for everybody else down the ballot who's Republican. Which, um, it's a minority. It's a very small group, but it's an important group. And I was, Which makes it, to me, so surprising where Governor Kemp lands because he's this mainstream Republican who stood up to Trump, but he also said he's voting for Donald Trump if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee. So there's, there's not as much daylight as I think some people try to establish. And that's not to take away from anything Governor Kemp has done, but at the end of the day, he's still willing to support Donald Trump on the, um, in November 2024. And I can't wait to hear what Secretary of State Raffensperger <laughs> says about, and I know I mean, he might be, I don't know, I don't want to put words in his mouth. We'll hear from I him. Did, so. <laughs> well, so, so that's actually a good entree. So, so why don't we actually transition then? I want to thank the best political team in Georgia, Tia, Greg, Bill, Patricia. Thank you so much. Just ahead, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger joins us on stage and more Q&A from our live audience. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to the special edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Now we go back to our special Politically Georgia live event recorded at Manuel's Tavern. As you just heard, Georgia is again at the center of the conversation. Our commitment at the AJC is to cover the news, to cover this campaign, to cover our legislature, 
to cover our local politics, to cover our statewide politics. We will call balls and strikes and we will report the news and we'll report the facts, that's our job. We're also gonna ensure that we have a variety of perspectives and viewpoints. We are not here to put forward one point or the other. We wanna make sure that the people of this state are heard. So as we sign up different contributors to come work for us, to appear on Politically Georgia, to write columns for the AJC, uh, you'll see us uh, bringing on board people who reflect a variety of points of views and opinions because this state matters, the opinions of the people in this state matters, and ultimately to get back to something Patricia was saying, uh, it, the voters matter. You know, we're here to, to do a service to our community. We're here to make sure we report the news. Our elected officials are here to serve the people of Georgia. And all that gets mixed up a little bit in the height of a presidential campaign. But when you look back to election night, not all that long ago, uh, we had a secretary of state who stood up and he stood up for the voters of Georgia. He stood up for the political process. Uh, and, and so we're lucky to have him here tonight uh, representing his point of view. So ladies and gentlemen, Secretary of State Brad Rockensburg. Thank you, Secretary. And you even wore red, white, and blue, the patriotic colors that- uh, I follow that, orders. You follow orders. He got the memo. Um, so we'll ask uh, a few questions until basically until Jamie up here tells us to uh, cue the questions from the audience and then folks in the audience will get a chance to ask, what, 15 or so minutes of questions? Does that make sense? Uh, well, thank you for joining us. And since, you know, this was going to be my last question, but since we were already talking about Donald Trump and where you might stand, let me start with that one. Uh, well, I've been, unless you want to give a quick intro first. Well, I'm Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State, <laughs> State of Georgia. So I'm going to ask that question Tia just alluded to, because I was with the governor. You were actually there, too, in, uh, at, the, at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin a few months ago, where the governor gave his case for why he would still support Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump has gone after him. You know more than anything what it's like to be on Donald Trump's bad side. Um, you might be a star witness in the trial against him that could start as soon as August of next year. If he's the nominee, will you support him? Well, it's always an interesting question that people ask, and they continue to ask it, and I continue to give them the same answer. I am the Secretary of State of the State of Georgia, and we actually have five different divisions, but the number one is elections. And then, since I'm your chief election official, we do not endorse, and we never have endorsed. In fact, in 2020, when President Trump was running, I did not endorse, and all the other constitutional officers did. And I got in a little bit of hot water over that, but the reason is, is I understand how polarized America is, and I want everyone to understand, we're gonna run fair, honest, accurate elections. We have 159 counties, and we ask every single county election director to do the same thing. Make sure you have fair, honest election. Yeah, make sure you leave any political bench you have outside and just run the election. That's our job, and so I don't endorse candidates. What I will tell you, however, is I think it's been pretty clear when I wrote my book, Integrity Counts. I think America needs a change. I think it needs fresh blood. I think it needs honest blood. I think it needs integrity at its core. It needs character, honesty, and the ability to have honest discourse. Because I think you asked the question tonight, and I saw a whole bunch of clapping, or the hands went up, and it was all the folks from the other side of the aisle. So I understand this is a bipartisan audience, but I think we need to be able to have respectful conversations. But then a quick follow-up. Do you see Donald Trump as as fit for the presidency if he, if he is the Republican nominee. You just continue, don't you? Yeah. You're a good reporter. A That's how you got it. where you got. Is that right? Very good. 
Well, I think if you really study the history of our presidents, I think we've had some great presidents. And from I'll, I'll talk about maybe my side of the aisle, but I think it can be both sides of the aisle on this. But you think about Washington. We, we esteem what Washington did. And really, he was humble. After he did his two terms, he stepped down. He let someone else step into those shoes. Then you roll forward to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Grant, many people don't realize that, yes, he won the Civil War, but also afterwards, he tried to pull the South back into the, into the whole Union. And then you roll it forward, then you look at, uh, sometimes, you know, people talk about Truman, but I had talked an awful lot about, you know, Dwight David Eisenhower, because he was a World War II general, ran, you know, a very complicated organization called the Allies. And then he became president. And on his reelect, he got about 65% of the vote. That's even more than the next great president, Ronald Reagan. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth because Reagan was a great president. But I think that's uh, what we're looking for. If you look at the character that is, you know, emanates from the, their being, that's what you're looking, and that's the type of people that are fit for office. And I think each one has to make their own decision. I know I've made mine. Do you see Donald Trump as the successor to Ronald Reagan? I think that when you have great vision that's forward-looking, because Americans are aspirational, that's the next Ronald Reagan. Okay, so we'll, we'll move on from Donald Trump. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your administration of, um, of elections here in Georgia. Um, you've gotten lots and lots of national attention, but you're also making individual proposals here at the state level. You've recently come out um, supporting the idea of having a constitutional amendment to keep non-citizens from voting. Um, it's a little bit deep in the weeds, but there is already a law that prevents non-citizens from voting. Why is that important? to you, it, um, it's hard for people from the outside looking in to know why you need an amendment on top of a law that's already been passed. Well, first of all, nationally, but also in Georgia, making sure that only American citizens vote in our election has broad bipartisan support. It's uh, interesting that 70% of all Democrats believe that only Americans should vote, 90% of all Republicans, 80% of all Jordans, obviously. 78% of all African Americans, 56% of all progressives even believe only American citizens should vote. But laws can be changed easier than a constitution. And I believe that when you set the constitution, then maybe that will stop some of the lawsuits. Right now, we have a court case coming up in about two weeks. We're being sued to stop the ability for the state of Georgia to do citizenship verification. That's the kind of the attack that we're getting for, from this activist on the other side of the aisle. Then you also saw recently in the paper that up in New York City, they were attempting to put non-citizens on the voter registration list, which has already lost when it, in the New York Supreme Court, and yet these people have come back around the back door trying to put non-citizens on there. We believe, and the, the large majority of Georgians believe, that only American citizens should vote in our elections. We want to codify that with our state constitution. follow-up. Are you seeing evidence of non-citizens voting in Georgia? No, because we do robust citizen check, and that's uh, something that we really you know, strive to do. First of all, through the Department of Driver Services, they want to make sure if you uh, want to be registered to vote, they're going to do a robust citizenship check, make sure that you meet all the qualifications of being an elector. That's a good thing. But some states aren't real ID compliant, but we are. But that's a good thing. That's one of the areas. But also, organizations could then attempt to go door to door and get people that aren't citizens and unwittingly actually register them if they don't ask the right questions. And many people don't realize that if you are a non-citizen, then you go ahead and vote. They say that you can never then get your citizenship. It's a serious federal violation, so you want to make sure you never start playing with people's future citizenship by getting them you know, registered on a voter list. 
Uh, Secretary, I want to switch gears a little bit. Right now, Rudy Giuliani is facing trial in Washington to decide how much he must pay for falsely accusing two former Fulton County election workers of voting fraud, voter fraud, the elections fraud lies. He was asked yesterday outside the courthouse if he regrets his actions, which have turned their lives upside down. Here's what Giuliani said. Of course I don't regret it. I told the truth. So even after all these years, there is still, and polls show it pretty much every other week, there's still a significant number of voters who believe in election fraud lies. What are you doing to combat those? Well, we are out there talking to people all the time. But the challenge that we had back in 2020 is we got up to about maybe 40, maybe 45,000 Twitter followers, and this other person had 75 million. And so whatever we did, we just couldn't win that battle. I feel like the Ukrainian army with the Russian army on the other side. How do you, can you win that? You really got to fight hard. But we pushed back. When that came out of that video, the State Farm Arena from the Senate meeting, and then uh, Rudy Giuliani narrated and, and started interjecting and saying all this illegality and ballot stuffing up, none of it was supported by the facts. But it got on Fox News, CNN, all these other news media outlets, and it was out there, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. And it was just out there, and still that urban legend lives. We disproved it the next day with WSB. Then we looked at it with our investigators, FBI looked at it, GBI looked at it. And I was talking to a Tea Party group when I was running for re-election. I said, all those people looked at it. And when I said the FBI looked at it, they said, well, you can't trust the FBI. And everyone laughed about it. But then I said, did you realize that President Trump handpicked his investigator to look into it? And that was Bobby Christine, who became the acting US Attorney of the Northern District. He looked at it and dismissed it. Finally, two years later, the State Election Board this past fall, they dismissed it based on all that testimony. All I can say is their lives were turned upside down and their lives were made a living hell. And I just talked to them just for a very brief minute when I was up in Washington, D.C. Uh, for that committee hearing, just to let them know that I've, both Trish and I, we, we understand what they went through. And uh, we, did, we had some security. They had none. And to be thrown into that situation is absolutely horrific. That shouldn't be done to any American, any time, any place. And so good luck to them. Let's keep talking about the security environment right now. Um, uh, recently, election offices, including your office, were sent letters uh, potentially laced with fentanyl. Um, you said at a press conference that election offices are being equipped with Narcan to to counteract the effects of accidental or deliberate exposure to fentanyl when people aren't expecting it. Um, what is the threat environment right now, and what does that do to your, to your effort just to run these offices and help counties run their offices as well? Well, obviously, we want all of our election offices to be prepared. Uh, right now, we have ongoing, it's Gavrio, which is the state election officials conference out in Athens. I was there yesterday, and today at quarter to five, Narcan was distributed out to the election directors that were there. We have about five, 600 folks that are at that conference. Then they also got training. We're just really grateful for Governor Kemp and Commissioner Toomey, Department of Public Health, uh, going through the training process. And they'll actually come out to each individual county to do individualized training You know, with all the workers there, pulling them together. We'll make sure that they are prepared for that. But then I talked to you earlier. Some of the other threats we'll be looking at, I, I just heard from a person from company called Blackbird AI, artificial intelligence. That's another threat vector that's coming in there. So we have all these things that keep us up at night. And our job right now is to be prepared for the 2024 election. And I know some people want to relitigate the 2020. 
We know who won the election. I can give you the numbers if you want to hear the numbers. I've done it for about 2,000 times now, different talks across the state. <laughs> Only I can tell you what happened. You know, the, the brief answer, the 30 minute, uh, the 30 second answer. But we want to be prepared for the 2024 election. That's what we're working hard on. I want to pause right there because we just, in the span of a few questions, talked about two Fulton County election workers who faced death threats harassment, intimidation, and then the fact that you are now having to distribute drugs, Narcan, uh, in case there's mail threats, you know, in case there's deadly uh, diseases being passed along in the mail. So what does that state say about the state of our political environment, the, the front lines of our democracy, the, the, the people who are staffing election offices, who are making sure the wheels of our democracy are working smoothly, are facing these types of threats? I think it really says that some people are just off kilter. And I just think we need to get back, you know, to those values that our parents raised us with, you know, the values of our country. It gets back to just being a good human being, you know, honesty, integrity, you know, just be able to talk to people and understand you may have different opinions about certain things, but, you know, we don't have to pull out our tomahawks and pitchforks and go to war on everything. We have a process for that. It's called the legislative process. Even that can come sometimes be verbally, uh, you know, pretty tough. But things get done, and that's how America works. And you work through your legislature to change whatever you want to see changed. When I, I um, had a chance to interview you and your wife, Tricia, um, in the aftermath of the 2020 elections, when y'all were really the targets of some very, very serious threats, um, how are you still getting those kinds of threats? Is your family okay? Are y'all settled into a... Um, a new normal, or do you feel things picking up again as we're getting into an election year? For some reason, they don't send the threats to me now. Uh, if anyone gets them, Trisha did. And but several months ago, she got one, and then it's when things kind of bubble up a little bit with what was happening at a local courthouse, an investigation that was going on, but, uh, there's a couple that came in. But by and large, I know this may sound strange to all of you, but I think that Georgia is actually in a good place compared to so many other states. And I think that's because Governor Kemp and I both ran for re-election. So we went up, we talked to people. We had all these conversations, and then people started understanding what was going on. And I think what we did is we just kind of lift that little thing that's on top of the, on the pressure cooker, let some of that steam out. And it kind of just calmed the waters. And so I think we're in a much better place than other states. But yet we still have some angry people out there, still some people that are frustrated. But it's not like some of the other states. I did a town hall, something like this, out in Arizona, and I thought I was back, transported back into 2020, the stuff that they believed, and I just really felt sorry for them because it's not helpful to be always looking backwards and, and, trying to, and living with all that anger and vitriol and those thoughts of retribution. I don't think that's the American way. So it might be a little calmer in Georgia, but it's not about to be. We're about to go right in the middle of a 2024 election, and then a 2026 election. We have seen recent polls that showed broad support for Georgia's election infrastructure and, and confidence in the election. But there's still many, uh, particularly Trump allies, who feel very differently. And I, I want to ask you about one of them, because Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones launched a scathing attack ad against you just a few weeks ago. It featured your face on a milk carton saying that you were missing from action uh, and going missing on big debates. I know it's all politics, but do these attacks, you know, six days after the 2020 election, we had two then current US senators, Republican senators call for you to resign. 
this, these attacks have not really abated that much against you personally. So A, does it grate on you? And B, how do you respond to shots fired from, you know, not Democrats, but fellow Republicans? I don't respond to every barking dog. I don't find that as really helpful sometimes. It didn't work in 2020. It's not working this year. It probably won't work in the future. But does it grate on you that... You know, you've had your, your allies, Republicans, in some cases, Republicans you served in the state legislature with not so long ago, um, Republicans you've campaigned with who are calling for your head. Well, these are interesting questions, and the reason they're interesting questions is I am a conservative, but I have this thing within me that I just... I don't think it came from my dad, uh, being married to Tricia for a while, being a Christian, somewhere along the line, and a lot of friends, but speaking into your wisdom to do the right thing. And I just think you do the right thing regardless of the cost. So when I take an oath to follow the law and follow the Constitution, that's what I do. And I think some people trivialize those oaths that they take. They, what they want is they want an outcome. And they just, in the, whoever that person is, but it's bigger than that person. It's really what this country's all about. And I think you take it back to what it was all about in 1776. Take it back to Normandy, people that died for us, for our freedom, for our liberty. When you start thinking about people that actually died for us so we could be here tonight and live in peace, we should never trivialize you know, our value system and we should really want to fight for it, not with anger, but with the truth. And so that's what we do, is we just talk to people with the truth, give them the facts. Voters are smart, they'll figure it out. And I think, you know, a country and western singer, he figured it out too. His name's Luke Bryant. And he happens to be from Georgia. And he said, most people are good. Maybe he wouldn't have done that song if he was from another state. But he's from Georgia and he said, most people are good and I'm going to stick to it because I believe you, Georgians are wonderful. I'm also a Luke Bryan fan. Um, a few kind of uh, questions about the actual voting ma machine infrastructure. Um, your fellow Republicans um, uh, really went after you a few months ago saying that there had been an evaluation of the state's voting machines and that vulnerabilities, potential vulnerabilities, were found in those and that they wanted um, your office to install new uh, new back-end software in every voting machine in the state. You said that there is not time to do that, um, but I know your office has also talked about making some changes to the software. Could you bring us up to date on that and tell us about your confidence in those machines going into 24? A lot of the, uh, that information came out from really a lawsuit, the curling lawsuit that goes back to 2017. It was curling v. Kemp. Then it was Curling v. Crittenden, then Curling v. Raffensperger. So it just morphed through there. It was about the old DRE, the electronic voting machines. Uh, this fellow, he did a study, and he had the machines for 12 to 15 weeks, I believe it was, with his researcher, a PhD researcher, so two guys that are very, very sharp. And had un, uh, they also had the source code. They had everything. And they said, well, here's uh, you know, several vulnerabilities. MITRE also did another study, and they said, well, none of this is really scalable. And they said, here's how you can mitigate a couple of those, and we're working on the mitigation. What some people fail to realize is that even though those, uh, you know, that re those reports came out, Dominion then started working on that. They didn't start working on that until the spring when they got a copy of it, and we did not then get a, a update. Uh, for several months, and then we had to run it through our system. We finally didn't get a 
first of all, EAC certification, because we cannot use a machine unless it's certified by the United States Election Assistance Commission. And then we have to then do our own certification, and we used a company uh, that was up in Huntsville that did our certification for us, our testing. And that was not done until late September. So we did about five counties with that new system. It's about 90, 97,000 man hours to do that. This is not an iPhone update. This is not just, oh, we got a new one. Okay, we'll just, tonight when I go to bed, I'll just put it, say I want my update. And when I wake up in the morning, it's all done. We are not connected to the internet. And because we're not connected to the internet, that means we got to send a team of people. So we got to send this team here, 97 man hours worth of people across the entire state. It's a big project. It's at least six to nine months worth of work. And it's not just us doing the work. It'll be also Dominion, but also then the counties. And right now, we are all getting ready to run the 2024 presidential primary. In fact, we need to start building ballots. We're doing the prelim work, but uh, sometime in January, about January 20th or so, we need a final final so that we can know what those district lines are and everything like that. So we're ready for the March 12th. Yeah, there's primary. that little matter of redistricting still being up in the air. Jamie's giving you the cue for questions. So I'll ask one more before we open it up to the audience. But I mentioned earlier we were both at the Texas Tribune Festival at the same time. And I'm glad the governor's not in the room because I can say this. You had a bigger audience than the governor. And I only say that because it reminded me that you also have an expanding profile far beyond Georgia. Uh, you know, everyone seems to have heard that, that famous phone call. Um, you have high name recognition. So as you look for what's next for you potentially, 2026, should we start to see you as a candidate for higher office, whether it be governor, U.S. Senate, something else? Right now, I'm focusing on 2024. I know there's a couple constitutional officers that are already talking about 2026. But let's have a successful 2024. Let's get that under our belt, and we'll talk about the future. So what questions do we have, folks? Oh, over there, Natalie Mendenhall has the mic. Hi there. Good evening. Thanks for being here, Secretary Raffensperger. I'm Representative Shea Roberts. And I want to get to, we could have a debate on whether or not we think the machines are secure. Coffee County, we had the worst actors steal the election software statewide. You can't just replace machines. But that aside, the folks that are, have been challenging the election since 2020 know that information just like some of us know that information. Why are we not removing that from their arguments going into 2024? Because I know you've been through hell in the last four years. We've all been through hell in the last four years. Why can't we use the state's scanners and things that can use it right now, but go to something that every election expert integrity person in the country says is safer, which the Trumpers want. Democrats asked for in 2019, which is hand-marked paper ballots, run them through the scanners, not hand count, and take that argument away so that we can all have confidence in the elections in 2024 and take that fight away. Thanks so much. Well, the challenge I have with what you said is I don't agree with your assessment. And the reason I don't is that uh, UGA and MIT did a uh, poll study, and they found that over 91% of all Georgians felt very comfortable and had a lot of high confidence in the uh, voting system. Uh, the big uh, discussion that people have been talking about right now is hand-marked paper ballots versus ballot marking devices. And we had a, a commission that studied this several years ago, back in 2018. 
and that commission elected to use ballot marking devices, and that was what was put in place with House Bill 316, and that's what requires required by state law. So state law would have to be changed before anything uh, could affect that, and there's no time to do that. Also, Blake Evans, who is our head of our elections director, actually ran elections down in North Florida. When he's talking to the committees of the Senate and the House, he's been very clear that if you want to run an election with hand-marked paper ballots, that is totally different than when you run it with a ballot marking device. Totally different procedures, and to set that up is a long period of time. So we're here where we are. We're following state law, following you know the state constitution. When people you know print out their ballot, they can look at who they voted for, they can verify that, and they can put it on the scanner, and then it'll scan. Then we can, now because we have a verifiable paper ballot, we can do audits of any elections. House Bill 316 put in there by 2020. So in 2020, we had to audit a statewide race. I elected that we would go ahead and I selected the presidential race and we did a 100% hand retally. And that verified that first of all, virtually the same result. And that told you two things. President Trump came up short again. So he did lose the race. Number two, obviously the machines did not flip the votes. If this county here, say Cook County, got the exact same answer, with the machine scanned and the hand tally, what does it tell you? That the machines were accurate. The errors that you do end up with mostly are gonna be with humans because machines are just looking at what they see. People make mistakes, honest mistakes. It's just something when you're looking at five million different pieces of paper. What else we got, Natalie? All right, thank you for being here. My name is David Barker. Um, and this is a little bit of a sideways question for you, but. I'm going to ask. I'm involved with the Libertarian Party of Georgia, and I'd like to ask, what is the rationale behind making it so difficult for a third-party candidate to be able to get on a ballot while we've reached the threshold for national elections, state house, state senate, and congressional? It is extremely difficult, extremely costly, nearly impossible to get a, a third-party candidate on a ballot. And I'm just curious what the rationale behind that is to make it so difficult. Thank you. That comes from state law that was put in place by the members of the General Assembly. And so for that to be changed, it would require state law. It's something my, it's past my authorization. What we do is we follow law and follow the Constitution. So it's really the work of you, know, you working through your party and just person-to-person uh, -person working with the legislature if you'd like to see that changed. Natalie, in the back. Hi, um, I'm Hillary Holly, um, And I, I wanted to ask a question. We're talking a lot about the 2020 elections. You were one of the first secretaries of state in the country to launch the voter fraud task force in 2019. That was full of prosecutors rather than voting rights experts. And so when we're talking about the building of the insurrection and sowing seeds and doubts into the election process, have you and your office thought about any implications of what that voter ta fraud task force did leading into 2020? Uh, the voter fraud uh, task force that we had, that task force was bipartisan. It had uh, attorneys, district attorneys prosecuting, but it also had both, both political parties, people from all different areas. It also had uh, independent, uh, nonpartisan, uh, nonprofit groups that were involved in the election process. What we were, our concern coming into 2020 was with the absentee ballot process, with the numbers coming up, we wanted voters to have confidence in that process. We wanted everyone to understand that we had signature match, that signature match was done county by county, all the processes were in place. 
And so really it was to help build confidence in the system. And unfortunately, we had a candidate who lost the election, and he just did not concede. And so uh, that kind of swamped the boat on that whole issue. But that was the purpose of stepping that up in the middle of COVID. Any other questions? No? Oh, there's plenty over here. Thank you. Uh, I'm Emory Morseberger. Thank you for doing this incredible forum. I am a Biden, Warnock, Kemp, Raffensperger Republican. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm pretty strong on that, and I plan to stay that way. Um, I have two questions. First of all, I, I feel that Trump will fall apart in the first quarter. I don't think Biden can beat any other Republican than Trump. What's your plan for the ballots that have those two names on them if, 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 if one or both of them fall off of the ballot? That's my first question. My second question is deep fakes, artificial intelligence. What is the strategy for dealing with just blatant fake news where you actually have a candidate saying things apparently live that is just totally made up? As it relates to, first of all, the presidential primary, uh, we've got uh, from the Democrat Party three names and from the Republican Party, I believe it was 14 names, and then there'll be the primary. Now, if something happens subsequent to that, then there's a process with the national parties and that ballot would then be adjusted. If, if for example, uh, we had just at the state house, you know, somehow someone moves out of the state or someone passes away, then there's a process to replace them. So if something of that situation arises, that's really a process already in place. As it relates going back to AI, that's one of the things I talked about. Uh, first of all, the National Association of Secretaries of State, that's one of the, we always bring in uh, subject matter experts on any kind of cyber threats, and I would put artificial intelligence in there. We also partner with Department of Homeland Security and GEMA, looking for any kind of threat vectors from that side, that advantage point. And we also do our own research, uh, but I'm looking forward to our NAS meeting that we, our National Association meeting we have in DC coming up in February, where we'll be having these pe uh, people coming in. We're really uh, briefing our team the best we can. The challenge that we have, Emory, is it's so good, and it can then get a whole world of its own spun up there before you can actually, you know, say that's, that was all made up. And that's really, you know, one of our major concerns. So we are, our radar's up, we're out there looking for it and we share your concern. Hi, my name is Doug Teeper. I represent an organization, a nonprofit environmental group called Georgia Conservation Voters. Um, U.S. Um, federal Court Judge Stephen Jones uh, issued an order that said that the um, majority in the Georgia legislature passed um, a series of maps for the state house, state senate, and U.S. Congress that violated the Voting Rights Act. And therefore, we had this special session, which some of us here just went through. Um, what is your prediction on what the judge will say about the maps that were passed um, by the Republican majorities in the House and Senate and signed by the Republican governor? Uh, and the hearing is on December 20th. What do you suspect will happen? I don't comment on ongoing legal cases. Uh, what I will share is that a lawsuit was filed uh, from the organization opposing uh, those maps. Uh, I got a copy from our general counsel this afternoon. I hadn't read it. Uh, I was driving over here. Uh, but uh, there'll be litigation on this. This will become before the judge. Um, and the only thing that we would ask for whoever and how that process works through, 
we have to build ballots. We have a presidential, you know, uh, a, a presidential primary coming up on March 12th, and we're working on that, you know, building of the ballot. And so we have a deadline, and uh, we'll see where it all takes and us. And a quick follow-up: What is that deadline for when your office needs those maps? The uh, final, final, final. I think uh, the, the 20, 20, somewhere 27th. We'll get it for you, but it's of uh, January. January. Yes, we're we're already we're ten weeks out, but there's so much work that has to go into very it. Very tight deadline. Very to get tight deadline. These maps, though. Yeah. Hi, Erica Burns. Um, you talk a lot about the American value system and integrity, and kind of getting back to that. We live in a world of fake news and George Santos. Like, do you genuinely believe that's possible? And do you? What are the specific actions and behaviors of our elected officials to get us back to that? I think it's, if we wait for the politicians to do it, it'll never happen. It really has to happen. It's each of us. I read a lot of business books over the years because that's where I, I was a business owner. But Peter Drucker has a book called Managing Oneself. It's a short little essay. And I found if I work on myself, that keeps me pretty busy. And if all of us worked on ourselves every day. And there's another book titled uh, The Man in the Mirror. But you have to go home and you have to be able to look at yourself. And that's one thing after the 2020 election, that my wife can look at me and know that I did the right thing. My kids can look at me. My grandkids, they just love me anyway. But the most important thing is probably be down the road, I'll be able to look in that mirror and I know that I did the right thing and I'll be able to keep my self-respect. When you lose your self-respect, it's tough to get it back. And so I think it has to be driven by you, you, you yourself internally and that's where most change happens. I wish it was an easy answer, because there's 340 million of us, but uh, lots of work for all of us to do individually. I think we have time for one more question, but while we wait for that last question, question from me, do you ever replay that, I know you wrote a book where you have an annotated version of that infamous phone call with Donald Trump, but you yourself, do you ever replay that and wish you had you'd said something differently, or you look back at it and say, I did exactly what I wanted to on that phone call? It was one of those kind, it was one of those calls that was almost surreal because Trish and I looked at each other in the kitchen and it's like, do you imagine what my parents would be saying? And she's, and her parents, her dad, you know, left school very young, poor English kid, uh, then fought in World War II and all that, like just grew up lower middle class. And that's like talking to the president of the United States of America, it was so surreal. So I wanted to make sure that, uh, I wanted to be respectful of his positional authority. And I will make a comment about that. I think. Just because you don't maybe respect someone, we have to remember we should respect their positional authority. Respect a lawyer, a, a district attorney, a judge, you know, your state rep, your state senator, county commissioner, all those different positional. Just respect your neighbor as your neighbor, that positional authority, if the, so be it. But I think that's what I want to do is just have a respectful conversation. And then I just want to give him the facts that I hope that perhaps if he heard the facts, that somehow he would start saying, well, that's not gonna happen here, I understand, and he would go on his way and uh, we'd move off of it. Well, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, we really appreciate your time and we appreciate you talking to our reporters throughout the year and in the next upcoming election year where you'll be, continue to be in the focus of the media's attention. So thank you so much. My pleasure. And that's going to do it for this special episode of Politically Georgia. 
It's such an exciting time to be following and covering Georgia politics and our state's important role in determining the winners and losers seeking the highest office in the land. Never miss a beat. Follow Politically Georgia on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll find new episodes every weekday at 1 p.m. And if you really want to know what's going on in Georgia politics, just subscribe to the AJC. We have a special unlimited digital access offer at AJC.com start. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.